Hello and welcome to the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health Podcast. I'm Jane Godsland, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal, and today we're going to be talking about a systematic review and meta-analysis we're publishing that looks at the clinical and social factors associated with involuntary psychiatric hospitalisation in children and adolescents. I'm joined by two of the paper authors, Dr. Susan Walker and Dr. Ramya Srinivasan. Dr. Walker is consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist at Great Ormond Street Hospital London and an NIHR fellow at the University of College London Division of Psychiatry. Dr. Srinivasan is a Wellcome Trust Fellow in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at University College London. Thank you both so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having us. So I'll jump straight in with the first question. Um, if you could give us a little bit of background about the work you're presenting in this paper, what were the aims and, and why did you want to investigate this? I've actually been interested in the use of the Mental Health Act in children and adolescents for um, several years now. And I first really started to think about this during my specialist training in child and adolescent psychiatry, which was about six or seven years ago now, when one Friday night on call, I was involved in the decision about whether or not a 14 year old girl who'd been brought in by police from her care home should be admitted to hospital under against her will under the Mental Health Act. Now, I'm sure most listeners to the podcast will know that the Mental Health Act is the UK legislation which enables someone to be admitted and treated um, in psychiatric hospital against their will. And there are strict legal criteria for this, which differ from country to country. But in the UK and most of the European countries, this includes presenting with a mental disorder and being thought to be a risk to yourself or other people. So before that Friday night on call, I'd actually been involved in decisions about whether or not to use the Mental Health Act quite a few times. And in the past, it always seemed quite clear what should happen. But as um, that Friday night we discussed this young girl, I started to wonder about the factors outside of her mental health issues that might be influencing our decision making, such as the fact she'd come from a care home and there were no adults there to advocate for her, or the fact that she'd been detained under the Mental Health Act before. So after that assessment, I felt quite uncomfortable, really, and went away to do some reading, mainly to make myself feel a bit better about it all, and was surprised to find there was hardly any research on the involuntary hospitalisation of children and adolescents. So I've now been lucky enough to receive some funding from the National Institute of Health Research to do some more research into this area. So in previous studies we've done in adults, we identified that there are a number of socio-demographic factors associated with involuntary admission, including being from a black or and minority ethnic group, being male, being unemployed and living in areas of increased deprivation, as well as clinical factors like having a diagnosis of psychosis or having been detained before. I guess at this point, it's probably also important to mention that involuntary admission is meant to offer protection to those who might require treatment against their will. And it does include safeguards such as the right to appeal the decision and mandatory aftercare after the admission has ended. But on the other hand, we also know that being held in hospital against your will can be frightening and traumatising especially when you're experiencing a mental health difficulty and that it can also negatively affect 
your future relationship with mental health services, which may increase your vulnerability to future mental health problems. So we really do need to know more about the factors that might make someone more likely to be admitted involuntarily than someone else, so that we can design targeted preventive measures to avoid coercive care when possible, and just in general, create a more equitable health service. Yeah, so so coming on to this study, we realised during our previous work that hardly anything was known about the factors associated with involuntary admission among children and adolescents. What we had found previously in the work on adults, that people who had been admitted involuntarily once were at increased risk of being admitted involuntarily again. So we did wonder whether children and adolescents who are detained against their will might become the adults who are detained against their will. So given the complete lack of research in children and young people in this area, we realised that the first step in this process would be to systematically review the existing literature so that we could then think about what to do next and inform uh, further work. Great. And that's a really lovely introduction to the field. So thank you for that, because obviously not all of our um, listeners and readers are adolescent psychiatrists or child psychiatrists. So can I just take you back a little bit to ask you about you're looking at the rates between voluntary and involuntary hospitalisation. So, I mean, that's an extremely complex delineation in adults, let alone in, in minors. Can you explain to us how you've defined these terms in your study? So, interestingly, the legal criteria for involuntary hospitalisation is the same no matter how old you are in the UK. And this is the case in most European countries as well. But as you suggest, the situation is more complicated in children and young people. And this is because of the potential role of parents and guardians. So in some circumstances, parents and guardians can agree to an admission on their child's behalf. And in this case, the child is not legally admitted under mental health legislation and they're admitted under parental consent. So even if the child themselves have not agreed to the admission legally, the admission is considered voluntary. So for the purposes of this study, we've included papers which compared young people who are legally defined as being admitted involuntarily. So they've been admitted under the mental health legislation. So this does mean that in our study, those admitted involuntarily includes those who've agreed to come into hospital themselves, but also those admitted under parental consent. And this was largely because very few of the studies included details of this distinction in voluntary admissions. So we weren't able to measure it, and it's one of the limitations of our study. So I guess as you allude to in your question, in addition to this complexity in children, we also in general need to think about the nature of voluntary admission and whether it is truly voluntary. So although adults can't be admitted under someone else's consent, there is qualitative research where some people talk about some voluntary admissions de facto being involuntary, where people describe feeling threatened with being detained and also of not being allowed without allowed outside without permission. So whilst the legal distinction between voluntary and involuntary admission may be quite clear, the reality is that this is a more complex delineation than it might initially seem across all ages. Okay, and can you just clarify for those who haven't read the paper um, yet, although I'm sure they will, what ages are we talking about when we're saying children and adolescents? What's the age range you've used? So we've used anyone up to 18, 
as being a children, child or young person. However, I suppose parental consent only applies until the age of eight, um, 16. Okay. So those um, between uh, 16 and 17 can't be ad admitted under parental consent. Okay, thank you. That's a really useful clarification. So then looking at the findings from the, the paper, what were the key takeaway messages from your work? Probably the, the key finding is also um, probably the main limitation of the paper, actually, and that's that there is so little research in this area. And um, given the long-standing and well-known discrepancies in the use of the Mental Health Act among certain population groups, it's really hard to understand why the children and adolescents who've been admitted involuntarily have not really been the focus of much attention before. But in summary, using meta-analysis, we did find that the clinical factors associated with an increased likelihood of involuntary rather than voluntary hospitalisation among children and adolescents were having a diagnosis of psychosis, substance misuse or intellectual disability, as well as presenting as a risk of harm to yourself or to others although it was very often unclear how these risks had been measured. Unlike in our adult study, there was no difference between um, men and women, but older adolescents were more likely to be detained than younger adolescents and children. But unfortunately, similar to previous studies in adults, we did find that compared to young people from white groups, young people from black groups were much more likely to be admitted involuntarily than voluntarily. And... One of the limitations of your study, as you as you uh, as you note in the discussion, is that all the studies included in the meta-analysis are from high-income countries. So, how much of a limitation is this, and what do we know about similar situations in low-income settings? This is a really good question, but it's it's actually quite hard to answer because we really just don't know very much about the situation in low and middle income settings. And this isn't just in the child and adolescent literature, actually. It was also the case in the adult studies. In the adult study we did, out of 77 studies, only four were from middle income studies, middle income countries, and there were no studies from low income countries. So there is a real lack of research about this. What we do know, um, is according to World Health Organization, the Mental Health Atlas they did in 2017, we know that the median number of mental health inpatient beds for adults in low and middle income countries is only about seven per 100,000 populations. And for children and adolescents, it's below 0.2 per 100,000. And in this, in this Mental Health Atlas, the number of involuntary admissions of children and adolescents wasn't recorded at all. In addition, where we do have a little bit of data about the use of mental health legislation for children and adolescents in low middle income countries, such as um, from India, where the new Mental Health Care Act of 2017 came out. But that places all the responsibility of healthcare decisions for those under 18 in the hands of the nearest relative. So the concepts of voluntary or involuntary admissions of children and adolescents may not apply in the same way. So, yes, it's a really important issue and it's something that really does need further exploration. OK, and you mentioned then about the discrepancies between um, the, the findings between races. So obviously we're just looking at high income countries when we talk about this now, but your findings found that uh, young people from black ethnic groups were three times more likely to be 
hospitalised involuntarily than were young people from white ethnic groups. So what do you think this tells us about the role that structural racism plays in psychiatric care of minors in in high-income settings? I guess the first thing to mention is that this finding is based on a very small number of studies, just three. And this really highlights the lack of existing research in this area in children, young people. And also because of the data provided in the studies, only crude categorizations of race were possible. However, the overrepresentation of people from minority and particularly black backgrounds in adults has been known about and recognised for decades. So, for example, there were 71 studies in the adult review that Susie has previously mentioned, and there is growing acknowledgement that this disparity in in voluntary hospitalisation in adults is associated with structural and institutional factors that lead to systematic disadvantage of people from minority ethnic groups. But, as we've mentioned, very little attention has been given to the role that structural racism plays in the mental health care of children and young people, and also the effect of early experiences of discrimination on health outcomes. So I guess our study highlights that there are significant racial disparities in involuntary hospital admissions among children and adolescents, but unfortunately can't tell us about the exact role that structural racism plays, which is what we need to know more about in order to change the systems that we operate in to address the inequalities. The fact, though, that we can see these racial disparities in the use of involuntary rather than voluntary hospitalisation amongst young people from black groups is particularly concerning, though, because it potentially relates to you know the establishment of a cycle of inequality that then follows them into adulthood and I don't know it's just really concerning that this topic has received so little clinical academic and political attention so far and it's worrying that children young people from ethnic minorities may be experiencing disproportionately coercive care as as a result of this so I guess we need more research into the systemic factors underlying these inequalities. And we need to know more about the barriers to access less coercive care with specific consideration of racial factors. And it's crucial that this research involves those from the affected communities. Yeah, so obviously a a huge area of uh, needed research. And as you say, the concern obviously here is we're seeing, if we're seeing similar signals and similar patterns in these adolescent, in patients then actually is that looking at a pattern going forwards. Mm. So another factor that your work identified as being a risk for involuntary hospitalisation uh, in this age group was having an intellectual disability. So firstly, could you define what you classed as an intellectual disability? And secondly, how should these findings influence care? Usually intellectual disability is strictly defined as sort of an IQ um, below 70. But for the purposes of the study, we um, defined intellectual disability based on the definition or the diagnosis given by the the primary source, the paper, just to ensure that we weren't too restrictive with our criteria. So in the UK, having an intellectual disability on its own isn't um, sufficient reason to be admitted under the Mental Health Act. And in order to use um, the Mental Health Act for admission, the person with intellectual disability has to be experiencing either a suspected concurrent mental disorder or be demonstrating abnormally aggressive behaviour. And few of the, the papers in our study were clear about exactly why the young person with intellectual disability had been admitted. 
And the other thing to mention is that our study wasn't able to look at the uh, rates of admission of autistic children and young people, which is another really important area of research. So there's growing concern in the UK about the involuntary admissions of people with intellectual disability because mental health units really aren't appropriate places for people with intellectual disability. And the need to admit somebody with intellectual disability involuntarily um, suggests that there have probably been multiple failures in community management, most likely related to lack of suitable resources and interventions. So in terms of thinking about priorities for future care, in order to reduce the number of people with intellectual disabilities being admitted to psychiatric hospital, we really need to ensure that people with intellectual disabilities and their families and carers have access to really timely, appropriate and well-funded community, community care. We've talked about the future a little bit there, Susie, but looking at the broader picture, what do you think the priorities for planning future care provision for children and adolescents with severe mental illness should be? So our study has given us a little bit more information about uh, some of the factors associated with involuntary hospitalisation. But what we weren't able to find um, from the data we had was how those factors really interact with each other. And at what stage in a young person's journey to the point of needing that Mental Health Act assessment or needing involuntary admission, at what stage do those factors exert their effect? And it's clear that the disparities that we identified are likely to be a reflection of wider, more systemic inequalities. So we really need to understand more about the pathways leading to involuntary admission well before the admission itself. Yeah, so, yeah, first, before we even consider the involuntary admission itself, we need to understand more about the wider factors, which not only affect the development of a severe mental illness, but also about the access to community mental health care so that we can design and plan the care to help reduce involuntary admissions amongst children and adolescents in the longer term. And a lot more research into these factors is, is needed first. And then sort of the assessment for involuntary admission itself, we need to know more about when and where these assessments and admissions are taking place. One possibility is that they're happening out of hours, which may disadvantage certain groups like, you know, like those with intellectual disability, as we talked about earlier, because familiar people may not be available or those conducting the assessment don't really know what adjustments need to be made in order to facilitate the assessment. We also need to know more about the prior contact with mental health services, um, especially in the community and potential barriers to accessing this. We know that child and adolescent mental health services are extremely stretched resource-wise, which is a real difficulty. And there also needs to be much more research into other groups of young people who may also be um, vulnerable to involuntary admission, like those with social care involvement or from poorer backgrounds or autistic children and young people, all of which we weren't really able to explore in our study. I guess a crucial part of any further research and service development will be co-production with young people with experience of accessing mental health care, both voluntary and involuntary, and also their families and the communities that they're a part of. And as we've mentioned, involuntary admission is likely to be a reflection of wider healthcare inequalities, which arise well before the point of admission. And to address 
the disparities in involuntary admission, we need to understand more about these factors from those who are directly involved. And with regard to this qualitative research, talking to children, young people, their families and communities will be really important. And also, as we mentioned earlier, there's been a lot more research in this area in adults. It might be helpful if studies looking at involuntary admission automatically include those under 18 years old as well as over 18. Because as we mentioned earlier, in many countries, the mental health legislation is actually similar in children and young people and adults. And sort of thinking about research in adults, we don't know about how involuntary admission in children and young people may affect their future engagement with mental health services as they become adults themselves. You know, these issues are particularly important given the rising rates of mental health problems relating to the current coronavirus pandemic. We know that black and ethnic minority communities have been disproportionately affected by this and that children um, with intellectual disability as well as autistic young people have also been significantly affected. Yeah, and we, and we know that um, young people with severe mental illness are amongst the most vulnerable in society. And it's just unacceptable, really, that we know so little about how to ensure that those people who need the help the most are able to access the support they need when they need it. So we really do hope that our study will help to stimulate further research into the factors associated with involuntary hospitalisation among children and adolescents and the systemic factors underlying these and ultimately help to ensure that there are equitable pathways to mental health care for patients of all ages and all backgrounds. Well, it sounds like you have an awful lot of work to do. (laughs) There is so much to be done, as you say, and it's brilliant that you've brought this so much to um, the forefront now that we can start these discussions and hopefully see lots of research and lots of funding for research to try and answer some of these really important questions that you've raised. Thank you both so much for giving up your time to chat with me today. It's a really fantastic piece of work and I'm thrilled that we were able to work with you on it. Thank you. Thank you for having us.